Welcome to the Ars Technicast, where Ars Technica writers and editors discuss the latest in the world of science, computing, technology, and everything else in between. During each episode, we dig deep into some of the issues we're writing about at ArsTechnica.com. We also talk about some of the stuff we're doing when we're not circling around the Ars orbiting headquarters. I am your host, social editor Cesar Torres, and I've got here with me senior reviews editor Lee Hutchinson. Howdy, howdy. Hey, hey. We've got a show full of space geekery ready for you this week. Unfortunately, Casey Johnston, who usually co-hosts with me, can't make it today. She's a little bit under the weather. But uh, Lee and I are going to just grab this by the horns. Or we're, we're talking about Gravity today, the, the brand new film by Alfonso Cuaron. Hooray, is, Mexican is that, director. You know what? That is actually the first time I have heard his name pronounced. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, it is Alfonso Cuaron. And, Cuaron. Uh, if I want to make it a little bit more anglicized, I guess it would be Quaron, which is what? quite hard to say, actually. Quaron. Yeah, and he uh, he's well known for many films, including uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Children of Men, Little Princess. Made, uh, made my favorite Harry Potter movie, actually. Out of all of the seven, the, the Prisoner of Azkaban that he did, I thought, was, was the best one. I agree. I also think it's the, the best one. It was concise and just really great. And uh, speaking of concise, we're, we're going to talk about his brand new movie, uh, Gravity, which is also concise. It's a, basically a, a blockbuster, and it still clocks in at around 90 minutes, which is shocking. And so um, we're going we're gonna to hit this from two different ways, everybody. We're going to have a bit of a beck and call uh, between Lee and I. I've seen the movie, and Lee has not. I have not. So... We're going to talk about what I liked about the movie, some of my thoughts, uh, some of the coverage that we're doing around the ideas and the science from the film. And then Lee is going to tell us a little bit about uh, what he discovered with actual uh, contacts from NASA who watched the trailer with him. So let's get started. For those of you that uh, are just joining us. Gravity is a film starring uh, George Clooney and Sandra Bullock. There, these two megastars are playing astronauts in this particular film, and the, the premise is pretty simple. They are <clears throat> out on a mission orbiting Earth, and at a certain point, there is a bit of uh, space debris. There's an that, event. A there's bad, an event. A bad event. <laughs> that um, not only messes up the instruments that they're using on the ship, but it puts them in very, very, very clear danger and imminent danger. And so uh, without giving you guys too many spoilers, uh, the worst things that could happen to them out there in space happen to them. And I'm, I'm going to put in a little preface here. Th- there will be some spoilers that we hit as we go through the, the show. So... If you guys want to tune out right now and go get your tickets or and go see the movie and then come back, then feel free to do that. But this is the point at which we might actually introduce a few spoilers because we just have to. We have to talk about what happened. So uh, off we go. So, so like I mentioned, help me out yep. here. I so I have not seen it. Um, I, of course, I've you know seen the trailer and read you know I've read some of the spoilers on the internet, so I'm, I'm familiar with the plot. But so just a level set here. So in this movie, you've got George Clooney is like the, the veteran, like senior command astronaut with the with the, you know, the stubble and the and the chin and, you know, all the George Clooney-ness. And then Sandra Bullock plays 
like the the mission specialist. She's not she's not a veteran astronaut like he is. She's like new to she's new to NASA, right? That is correct. And what's a little bit weird is that you know she's basically a, an MD out there in space, and for some reason she's doing technical work on the surface of the spacecraft. The Hubble <laughs> the Hubble Space Telescope is what they're up there servicing, right? Yeah, and uh, that that's a little odd, but. Well, maybe you know, it's sick. It, it, it's, it, had a, it had a cough. It needed a doctor. <laughs> well, this is where I kind of want to bring it back to uh, me sort of really enjoying the movie for it being a movie. And that means there's a lot of suspension of disbelief uh, that, that happens in it. And though I do agree that it is unclear as to why she would really be out there helping with this technical stuff, uh, it helps because uh, you've got this more senior officer out there doing all this work and she you can tell she's a little bit hesitant she's new to the job she's a rookie essentially and she's quite nervous especially at the beginning of the movie right now so i want to i want to address that real quick here um so as you know i spent um, a great amount of time interviewing people at nasa's neutral buoyancy laboratory the, the big giant underwater pool where they train astronauts to do spacewalks it's it's actually just down the road from me um, and one of the folks that I talked to, uh, who I actually interviewed again later when we were talking about gravity, is a fellow named Zeb Scoville, who runs the EVA task group uh, and runs the, the group that controls the uh, – they do a lot of different things. But one of the things that they do is they design the movements that the astronauts use when they're underwater. Um, and so to address Sandra Bullock's character's hesitancy on EVA, uh, EVA, extravehicular activity, that's the spacewalking – so she would be pretty familiar, I mean, with with the procedures for moving around outside. Um, if she was an, an actual, like, trained astronaut, she would have gone through, uh, according to NASA, uh, would have gone through at least uh, eight to ten dives in the big NBL pool. Each And, and like, each dive is, is six to eight hours long. So she would have had a lot of exposure to the simulated EVA before. But, that being said... Um, Every astronaut that I've talked to has said that there's absolutely no substitute for that first time you step outside of the spacecraft and you are, you are, I mean, it is like the, you know, the stars stretching to infinity out on all sides of you. All of your training helps you and you know what to do, but that, that it's still a little overwhelming. Yeah. And I, I think that's conveyed very, very nicely in the film by Sandra Bullock, who is not even one of my favorites and neither is George Clooney for that matter, but they both kind of really... Uh, bring great performances to this. So as as she's out there, uh, uh, there's an announcement, as we mentioned earlier in the show. Here, here come the spoilers. Uh, debris from a Russian missile strike on a defunct satellite uh, is basically headed their way. It's, it's shooting in all directions, but it's causing, uh, ra- I guess, radio signal disruptions, but also uh, it poses a threat because they're, they're it's like shrapnel, basically. And so, uh, you know, the film just basically opens with this. And as you can imagine, <laughs> some of those pieces do strike. Uh, and I wondered, I wondered. So d- let's just kind of rewind here for a minute. The debris from a Russian missile strike on a defunct satellite. How, how often is this happening? I mean, it, or has this happened before? I'm not actually, actually familiar with uh, the history of some of these uh, missiles, but... Uh, not, would, would there be reasons a, for, to do this? Not with a Russian satellite, no. But there was an incident um, relatively recently. 2007 um, is the most recent one that I can think of, where there was a uh, there was a Chinese uh, 
anti-satellite missile or uh, anti- yeah anti-satellite missile that was launched and destroyed a defunct Chinese weather satellite, and that actually cluttered up the um, that cluttered up a pretty big section of low Earth orbit with you know spinning debris, and it's all still up there, uh, and it made it actually makes a lot of headaches for NASA and uh, the uh, the guys watching the space around the International Space Station because the debris doesn't... I mean, eventually it will burn up and it, it will, it'll spiral into the Earth and burn up in the atmosphere, but it, it takes, depending upon its trajectory, it takes quite some time. Uh, and, and it's cumulative, too. So over the course of, you know, the history of man's space flight, people of uh, space walking out there have lost tools and gloves and, you know, bolts and things. Uh, even during the ISS construction, there's stuff that occasionally floats off, little bits of things. Uh, so yeah, space debris like this is a even for, especially from like destroyed satellites. If it's in the right, um, if it's at the right orbital height, can be a very very big problem. Now I want to say the other side of that is, um, depending upon the type of communication satellite, it might not be as big of a deal. Um, yeah, and I don't know if it was in the movie. I don't know if it's a spy satellite or a communication satellite or whatever. It all depends upon how high it is. The Hubble Space Telescope is at a certain altitude, um, and that altitude is 400-something. I'm sorry, 500, 550, 560 kilometers, um, and the ISS is a little lower than that. And if the spy satellite is way high up in, in geostationary orbit or if it's a communication satellite way high up in geostationary orbit, then that wouldn't really it wouldn't really make that much of a difference. There would still be debris, but there wouldn't be any danger of a collision or as as NASA calls it a conjunction. Interesting. Now I want to um, let you guys know, listeners, that uh, this this particular piece that Lee is referencing some of the conversations he had with uh, Zeb Scoville from yes. from NASA uh, come from the actual uh, site. So if you go to the show notes for today's episode, you can find that right there. And now might actually be a, t- a good time to pull those up if you're listening to the show and you have a computer handy because uh, you can actually follow along. And uh, we you guys did this off of the trailer of the movie so just keep that in mind everybody this isn't actually shot by shot from the film that's right but some of the major premises we're hitting here so the debris is important because that kind of really sets off all the events of the movie and so what what ends up happening is uh, there is a really cool wikipedia page i recommend you go look up while you're while you're while you're listening uh look up kessler syndrome k-e-s-s-l-e-r or kessler effect um and I believe that's what ends up being portrayed in the movie. Without again, without getting into the spoilers here, the the Kessler effect or the Kessler syndrome is thought was a um, it's a theoretical sort of cascade of failures proposed by uh, a NASA scientist named Don Kessler in the 70s, talking about how if you've got enough stuff in low Earth orbit and you have enough collisions between the stuff in low Earth orbit, eventually the debris formed by that will, will become this massive, it'll like spiral out of control and you'll have this massive amount of incredible debris. Sort of like, sort of like the old experiment where you've got a bunch of ping pong balls on mousetraps and you drop one and it sets off another one and then like within a second or so all of the mousetraps are shooting off ping pong balls everywhere. And that I think is what ends up happening in the movie here. Now from a moviegoer's perspective, uh, I saw this in 3D. I didn't see it on a, on a ma- massive screen. I probably will see it one more time on an I- proper IMAX screen. But the the setup of this was 
terrifying as it was, I mean, you already feel a little bit of claustrophobia because you really are just following these guys in their suits. And the perspective obviously is a movie perspective. The camera can see outside of that. But you can already tell, you know, they're out there. They've got a limited amount of space to do this uh, repair. And the debris is headed their way. And so once, once it happens, this chain of events really kicks off. And I... I just want to mention that, you know, once once we hit that point in the movie, I really felt like, OK, this is like the roller coaster ride. There's no getting off of this. Uh, and it's very, very seamless the way that these um, special effects kind of at least try to portray this as realistically as possible. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about the can you, if, if you've read the thing, can you talk a little bit about the, how the, the rig that they put the actors in to film the uh, to actually do the visual effects with? Yeah, so this is another piece that you guys can find on Ars Technica. It will run either this weekend uh, when you're listening to the show, or you may have to wait until the following weekend. But uh, I actually got a, a bit of a tour with uh, Framestore, which is the CGI company that built the, the special effects for this. And they actually showed us some clips of how they use this really amazing rig where they have either Sandra Bullock or George Clooney or both of them side by side in what looks kind of like <laughs> that throne that uh, Darth Vader is in <laughs> in Star Wars. <laughs> and um, they're able to change uh, directions on this in order to simulate weightlessness, which I know has been sort of controversial because uh, not only are we going to talk about it, but even people like Neil deGrasse Tyson have, have mentioned that some of the... Uh, effects of weightlessness don't seem to jive with the actual physics. Uh, all that being said, the way that they rig these actors and have the special effects sort of wrap around them is really, really incredible. From a moviegoer's perspective, again, it, it works and you're just totally pulled in. So I, I certainly wasn't uh, crossing my arms and sort of thinking like, oh, you know, the, the hair isn't falling uh, straight in their face or, right. or or moving across their face because there's no gravity. Um, it, it really kind of, it worked for me because it's also pretty action paced, but the, the rig is pretty amazing. And I, um, I believe from what they told us, none, nothing like this has ever really been attempted before. Usually in some other movies such as uh, Apollo, is it Apollo? Apollo 13. 18? 13. Yeah. In Apollo 13, I know they used, um, I don't know the technical name of it for movie making, but they basically put the actors and the cameras in a, in a plane. It's and called, they, it's called the, uh, it's called the RGA, the reduced gravity aircraft. <laughs> and it is colloquially called the vomit comet. There you go. And, uh, for those of you who have, who have never seen it, I've seen clips of how they do it. It's pretty amazing. They just, you know, they're, they're. Well, can you describe it, Lee, better? Than they fly, like it? Yeah, yeah, they fly a series of they fly a series of parabolas. So they get they get the plane up, um, and they they go you know they go way high up and they crest and peak and then go way way down. They do it twenty or thirty times in a run, uh, and it gets you about thirty seconds or so of weightlessness. So yeah, when you watch Apollo thirteen, Ron Howard, Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, and um, the other guy, Kevin Bacon. Um, <clears throat> They actually booked time. Uh, the studio booked time, and NASA cooperated and loaned them the Vomit Comet for a for a whole set of filming days. And they put uh, they had to actually build the um, command module and lunar module sets inside of the fuselage of the of the reduced gravity aircraft. Uh, and they can only do like takes about thirty seconds at a time because that's how long it takes before you have to pull up out of your you know dive towards the Earth so that you're 
plane doesn't crash into the earth. So, um, but yeah, that, so that's one of the few times you've actually seen real, non-simulated, for real uh, microgravity on film. Everybody else has to, has to fake it in some way, usually with wires or something. Um, now in gravity, I, so one of the things that, that Zeb Scoville commented on when we talked was that um, you know, there's so much CGI in the movie, but for the little things, like when they've got, uh, there's a little scene in the trailer where the astronauts are outside working on the Hubble and like they flick like a little bolt, like it's like a, like a little like, you know, socket bolt kind of thing. Um, not only did the bolt that they're using look exactly like the, the real Hubble bolts and the tools that they're using look exactly like the real tools, Zeb commented that the, the way that the bolt spun in microgravity really mirrors how a bolt like that of, of similar mass would spin and move in for real microgravity. So, I mean, they did a tremendous amount of homework, um, but, you know, there's, you can only do so much. You can't really go in there and simulate Sandra Bullock's hair moving in zero gravity without just putting an entire computer-generated Sandra Bullock in there. And, you know, that's... There was a movie about that in the 70s called Lookers, and it didn't end well. So I'm glad they're sticking with physical actors. <laughs> yeah, and th there's, a, there's a lot of magic, CGI magic, that went into this. Uh, and uh, it's it's just pretty amazing to, to see kind of how the whole thing comes together. Uh, when you see the film, because I know you haven't seen it yet, Lee, it... it um, it, it provided the screen is good enough. It, it does that view of Earth and just sort of all these multiple angles that you get are pretty terrifying. They're they're great. Now, moving on to some other uh, parts of of what we sort of wanted to uh, uncover here is the jetpack. Right. So, as Sandra Bullock is having her own set of issues, right, uh, with with this debris, yeah, uh, George Clooney, the movie star the the hero comes to her help and he's got a little bit of technical help because his particular suit has a jetpack that has these little rockets on in on multiple sides where he can basically hit different angles right. and move himself about through um space and um i really wondered myself how does this how would this actually really work it seemed to me like something very story driven meaning it works for hollywood but i don't know if i've never actually seen something like that in nasa footage so okay a couple of things so i called this out in the linked article uh where where i talked with with zeb scoville because you're right there's there used to be a piece of equipment that flew on the shuttle called the mmu the manned maneuvering unit uh, and it looked very much like the jetpack that clooney is sporting um, it was designed to allow astronauts to service satellites, which is one of the things the shuttle was supposed to be used for and actually wasn't used for that often. Uh, and it allowed it, you know, the astronaut could hook it in. It was a very large backpack with two arm controls, lots of um, compressed nitrogen gas on board for fuel. And the astronaut could fly, you know, untethered away from the shuttle. And there's actually a very, very famous photograph uh, taken from one of the Challenger missions where the MMU is being tested of astronaut Bruce McCandless. Uh, and he's floating. He's he's not he's not as far away as he looks in the photograph because of the way the the lens because of the lens that was used. But in the picture, he looks like he's just like way off in the distance. This little bitty white suited speck with his backpack on against the backdrop of Earth and stars. It's a beautiful photograph. But okay, all that being said, the MMU was retired uh, and is no longer used. There are still some in storage, but they weren't used on the space station because. <clears throat> They're very, very large, and they're too large and too bulky to be used effectively in the smaller spaces 
um, when that astronauts have to squeeze themselves into during ISS construction. However, I saw a comment in the uh, in the art in the uh, the gravity piece that I posted earlier that we're talking about, saying that it, this actually is a kind of addressed sort of in the movie, saying that this is a it's a new type of experimental backpack that NASA is trying out for the Hubble mission. So I mean, you can kind of give them a pass on that. The closest thing to Clooney's backpack that exists today. I'll make this really short because this this was when I talked to Zeb about this, we spent like half an hour talking about this thing. The closest thing that exists today is a piece of equipment called SAFER, S-A-F-E-R, which stands for uh, it's an, everything in NASA is an acronym, Simplified Aid for EVA Rescue. Um, it is a it's not a big backpack thing. It's actually kind of like a little well, not little, but it's kind of like a big fanny pack that clips on behind the astronaut's uh, PLIS backpack, the portable life support system backpack, and it has two risers that kind of come up over the shoulders with all the little jets on it. A SAFER is intended, for, just like the acronym says, it's intended to be used um, not as your primary means of moving around outside, but rather in case of, you know, if you're reaching for something and you miss your handhold and you drift off, you can, you know, flip, you can pull your SAFER control panel out. It's got a really neat auto auto leveling system in it where as soon as the as soon as the control panel is activated if you're spinning it'll automatically figure out how you're spinning and stop you from spinning and then once you're all straightened out once your rates have been nulled in nasa speak um, you can then sort of jet yourself back over to the to the station or to your spacecraft so there's one other thing though um and it, the thing that actually inspired me to write the, you know, is this trailer accurate piece that that we keep talking about is in the movie. As soon as the as soon as the debris starts flying, uh, Sandra Bullock's character calls out for, for, you know, help. She's like, you know, rescue me off because she's stuck on the end of the, the SSRMS arm repairing the the Hubble. And she's like, help me get me out of here because I don't want to die. And Clooney, like he's got this jetpack on he like whips around and like rockets off after like superman um and then like gets up there and like it, 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 all throughout the trailer he's like flying around with this thing and if you've seen any <laughs> if you've seen any nasa footage of evas you know that when astronauts are working outside they don't go that quickly they just don't do it there are lots of reasons um but with this particular jetpack uh, i asked uh Zeb, I was like, well, listen, you know, if, if somebody had one of these on, you know, forgetting the fact that this particular piece of equipment doesn't exist, if it did, would you really be able to, you know, shoot off in this direction really fast and like flip around and whatever? And so he said that typically the type of equipment that NASA would, would put on astronauts, the, the MMU and the SAFER can apply a delta V or an acceleration of about 10 feet per second to the average massed astronaut. Um, and there is enough fuel on board. Really, I mean, it doesn't use rockets or anything. It uses little bursts of compressed nitrogen gas, so there's no combustion or anything. And there's enough fuel on board to do one of those really quick zippy maneuvers that Clooney does maybe once. Possibly enough to, like, get going that fast and then real quick turn around and stop yourself that fast. But those high acceleration, high delta V type maneuvers that he does all throughout the trailer, at least, uh, absolutely no way. Because you, you could do it once and then you'd run out of propellant. Yeah, <clears throat> I had that question right away as I watched that. And then also tied with that is the the amount of oxygen that were in these packs, which plays a huge part in the, the, the suspense of sure. the film. And so I think this, that 
is a great segue to talk a little bit about uh, just how much of this story um, is science fiction. And I think that's something that's really important to remember is that the film itself, you know, the way it was shown to us in the trailers and marketed, it it gets you excited because it, it really presents NASA-type experiences out there. But it really is science fiction in the way that something like Star Trek might be science fiction. And I, I want to just bring this to like some very specific examples. Like in Star Trek, not too many years ago, there was there were devices that looked like what today is an iPhone. And I, I really do believe sometimes science fiction inspires scientists to push further into the you know the boundaries of technology and make things that fictional stories you know sort of show, showed them how to do and i think in this case it's super subtle and that's why some of these conversations have sparked up about you know is this technically possible a lot of these things don't really exist or they're not feasible now but who's to say that you know if some kid watches gravity today and becomes a an astronaut or a NASA scientist that one day they could, you know, work towards this. And like you said, there's already being introduced some of these um, things little by little. But uh, I want to just kind of stress that, that I think, you know, this, especially this show is about sort of conversing about the, the storytelling and some of the science, but um, it definitely is science fiction. You know, there's, there's an amazing story that I read on a NASA website that I cannot access right now because of the government shutdown. So I'll have to, I'll have to relate it very quickly from memory. Um, I believe it was George Takei was talking about back in the, uh, in the, uh, the end of the seventies when they were unveiling the, uh, the, the space shuttle enterprise, the, 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 um, approach glide test, very, very first prototype shuttle they did, which was named enterprise after the, after Star Trek because of a big writing campaign. That as they were as they were getting the tour at KSC at the Kennedy Space Center and meeting some of the engineers who worked on the shuttle before they did the big rollout, um, George Takei described how he was so excited and nervous to meet, you know, to meet all of these astronauts and these amazing NASA scientists who did all this, and he was actually a little nervous and intimidated about like you know I'm going to be in the same room with all these guys. These are like actual guys who have flown in space and and NASA guys who make the spaceships. And when the actual meeting occurred, you know, and they got everybody introduced and shook hands and everything, the uh, the NASA people were even more nervous because they were like, oh, my God, we can't believe we're meeting, you know, the, the Star Trek people. You guys are the guys that, you know, when I was a little kid, I watched, you know, Star Trek. And that's why I had this job. And it was this it was a really cool, uh, like the story of mutual respect, like the the actors respected the scientists because they were like, oh, my God, you guys are so smart. And the scientists were in turn very respectful of the cast of Star Trek because they were like, oh, my God, you guys inspired us to actually have these jobs and do all of this stuff in the first place. So yeah, I think you're you're totally right. It The the job of science fiction is to inspire uh, and, and it does. <laughs> and kind of, I mean, the uh, the thing about having to take some liberties in order to do that inspiration is absolutely correct, because. If you want to see an actual, for real, you know, amazing NASA EVA, you don't have to actually watch Gravity. You can just go turn on NASA TV and watch footage of actual EVAs. And the problem is, it's just really 
boring. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just not that exciting. I mean, well, it's really you know, cool. that's, that's one of the, the beauties of, of fiction. You know, you take something like, like that or uh, actual court proceedings. They're never as yeah. exciting as it's not a novel like a few good or a movie. Men. And I think that's, that's the magic of it. I think it's really to, to inspire people. So I, I want to sort of point everybody back to Lee's piece. I know there's a few other um, elements of it that we could cover. But we're not going to because we. I really do think for a lot of you guys listening, uh, if we keep going further, we actually are going to spoil it so much. You're, there's, there's just going to be no point in the movie. There, yeah, there is. There is one very big one. I, I won't. I won't get into the big one. I know there's one huge one. As far as what I thought of the movie, uh, we're just going to kind of bring it back to some conclusions, and hopefully, Lee, you'll be, you'll be so compelled after my mini review that you'll just run out there and go get your ticket and go see it tonight. I'm excited. If you're, you don't have plans. Um, so as far as uh, a nerd perspective on, on this particular film, I mean, I think it is a knockout story. It's not only exciting, it is around 90 minutes, which I think is great by today's standards. Most movies are way too long. And in terms of the, the story, I think this is really cemented by the story between people. There's all the space stuff happening. There's the brushes with death. But really, this is about the relationship between two people on there and then the relationships with people they have on Earth. And I was really blown away by how well that was executed through this whole vision of NASA and space and terrifying claustrophobia through it. Uh, there's also some similar themes that we've seen in other Alfonso Cuaron movies, which are the relationship between children and their parents and sort of relationships between a person and their potential death. Uh, really, really, really interesting stuff. So I highly recommend it. I do think you guys should go see it in 3D. Um, from what I understand, it was actually formatted properly for 3D, like rendered in 3D the way that Avatar was. So that makes it really kind of a must-see with those 3D glasses, which I'm not usually a fan of. So uh, from my point of view, I say go out and get it, go out and see it. And Lee, uh, I'm going to want to talk about it more once you actually do get I'm, to see it. I'm looking forward to it. The theater that, I'll, that I'm going to go see it at is actually on NASA Road 1, just down the street from JSC. That's actually kind of the advantage of living in this area is – uh, I'm kind of hoping when I go see it that there's that there's NASA people in the audience, and odds are there will be, uh, especially since everybody's furloughed right now, so there's nothing to do but go see movies. I really want to see if somebody stands up and is like, I worked on that, and that's not how that is in real life. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, please do uh, check that out. and Maybe um, bring a video camera, ask them uh, you know, to tell you what they thought of it. Uh, because it, I think it does get a lot of conversations started. I, I think if I was a kid, if I was 10 years old, this movie would just blow me out of the water for oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I would want to be a scientist. Absolutely. Based on this. And I think that's, that's a, you know, it's great positive uh, force. <clears throat> there are even more technical issues that I think um, movie nerds, CGI nerds, NASA nerds will find in the film. Uh, we would, I would be totally open to talking about this again in the future on the podcast once the movie is in wider release. Uh, but for now... Uh, like I said, if you guys made it this far, you, you've got plenty of spoilers. You've got some stuff to really think about during the movie. And we try to not go too deep so that you could actually enjoy it without sort of knowing how it ends. That's right. um, so, Lee, I want to thank you for joining me today in this uh, sort of compact version of the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you. And look for those two pieces. We'll link to them in the show notes. As you guys always remember, we love it when you give us a review in the iTunes store. Uh, we like it when you subscribe on Stitcher. We like it when you subscribe on SoundCloud. And you can always leave us your thoughts and comments right in the actual show notes on arstechnica.com. So until next time, we say see you soon. Adios.